Hello and welcome to the Try Mechanics podcast, episode four. Try Mechanics podcast. Uh, this is episode four, and today we're going to be taking a slightly different track. We're going to be moving away from the nutrition side of things just for this episode and going a little bit more towards the training side of things. So, I've picked a couple of topics uh, that might be quite relevant, particularly the first one in relation to going into the off season and how you're thinking about best training for um, this uh, essentially building everything over the winter, but also thinking about next year. And then the other topic's going to be looking a little bit on the idea of, of tapering. And then the final topic is actually something, a topic that's very close to my heart, which is essentially related to sitting. So we've been discussing this quite a lot recently. I've done a few articles about this. And I think that it's something that is, um, it sounds relatively simple to understand, i.e. the idea of, of sitting less and standing or moving more. Um, but it's not quite as simple as that. And actually, a lot of us are in situations where we can't change the way we sit, or at least we can't change the fact that we sit, but we can possibly think about changing the way we sit or what we sit on. So the first topic I'm going to discuss about is um, is in relation to training intensities. So I've had a few uh, questions, very specific questions, about how do I train for this event, or how do I train for that event, and we tend to think about this, we obviously normally think about, right, well, how do I train for that event uh, specifically? But the key thing with that is that there's certain levels of fitness or certain parts of fitness that are um, that cross the board, basically, that we, at the end of the day, we are doing an aerobic sport. So that's what it all comes back to. So there's certain separations. So let's take cycling and running just as good examples. There's points at which they, they transition over from being um, predominantly anaerobic um, to moving into the aerobic side of things. And it's actually relatively early on. And in terms of running, you're thinking about really the transition starts taking place when you go over about 200 metres, 400 metres, 800 metres, you're starting to really move into the top end of aerobic power. Then you're starting to move towards obviously the 5k on onwards um, that are really you know, almost solely aerobic based because you can get a small amount of input from the anaerobic system, but at that point you're not going to be gaining a lot from that. And it's generally only the case that you're um, using that either in the kind of final parts or possibly sometimes the first parts of races, um, but the the actual most of the race itself is aerobic. So the key thing to think about when we when we're thinking about the aerobic and the anaerobic systems is that they're not uh, separate from each other. They have a, an interrelationship that mean that and not only do we use obviously bits and pieces of them at different times, but we also use them. It's very muscle specific. So we've discussed about this before about. Um, if, if you're using a muscle to a essentially higher amount of its um, strength or your uh, essentially contractility, then you're likely to be using the more of the fast twitch or the intermediate fibers that tend to rely more on the anaerobic system because they don't have as many mitochondria, they don't have the ability to produce as much energy from oxygen as the slower twitch fibers do. So this can be actually, you know, during a muscle actually as it's contracted, something like the hip flex is a great example, that actually as it started to contract and, and applying relatively minimal power, then it might be predominantly aerobic as it gets to the end point of its contraction. 
and requires the use of those fibres, then it might become predominantly anaerobic. So we need to understand that they, there is a relationship and it's not just a case of if we're sprinting we're anaerobic and if we're running long distance we're aerobic. But the key thing to really bear in mind is that even in the shortest distance sport, the aerobic capacity, the ability to produce energy from oxygen is king and will always will be. So that's what we need to relate to back to the training intensities that we use. So the question was, um, how do I train for something essentially shorter, something like a hill climb, something that might last between five and eight minutes long? Well, when we're thinking about I'm thinking about, as I say, what systems we're using, um, what training intensities, and what, um, what we need our body to be able to do. So at that point, we are working relatively close or, uh, you know, at kind of VO2 max level. That VO2 max, normally we can sustain our VO2 max for about between five and eight minutes is, a, is often kind of banded around. It seems about right appropriate from research that that would be the case. So the key thing is, is that when we're at VO2 max, we are essentially producing uh, as much energy as we can from or we're taking, you know, from essentially the aerobic system. So we're taking in um, as much oxygen as we can. So it might be limited as, you know, VO2 max is a, is a combination of a lot of different factors. It is not one single thing. That's why it's very difficult to say, right, well, I'm doing this intensity to work on VO2 max. And actually, the, that's often the end product. So there's lots of different ways to work on VO2 max. So let's break it down. You could, you could think about the oxygen delivery system um, that you actually gain. You can work on your VO2 max by working specifically on the respiratory muscles using something like a power breed or something similar. Um, you can work on the VO2 max by increasing the uh, your essentially the lung capacity, the overall lung capacity through those mechanisms and those devices, but also uh, through the kind of development stage. So this is more obviously applicable to when we're actually developing and growing than it is to uh, when we're kind of essentially later on in life. And that's something I really want to touch on. And we're going to really focus on that slightly later in this uh, answering this question. So the key thing thinking about that is that the VO2 max has all these factors. And I don't like worry people to worry too much about VO2 max because not only is it a combination of all those factors, but it's also only one half of the larger equation. We have to then think about how we're using that oxygen, which is the kind of efficiency side of things. So if you have very, very high VO2 max and very high efficiency, it's likely that you're going to be in the elite athlete category. If you have very high VO2 max but very low efficiency or vice versa, then you're likely to be essentially lower down. But where you end up with in terms of that is a relationship between those two things. So just because you have a high VO2 max does not make you uh, a great athlete and vice versa you have great efficiency but have very low efficiency with a very little amount of oxygen you can take in and again you, would be, well, you wouldn't be putting out the amount of output in terms of power or whatever you're using that would uh, make you an elite athlete. So that's one thing to bear in mind. The other thing to bear in mind, and I really want to kind of hammer this point home, and this is something that is is only really uh, partially backed up with the research because it's an extremely difficult thing to study, um, but there are bits of pieces of information that start to put together a jigsaw that point in this direction, that the development in terms of VO2 max, in terms of those the factors that are the more structural factors, so I'm thinking about things like the blood vessels in muscles and the alveolar in the lungs and all those factors, they tend to be developed when we're relatively young, when we have got a lot of stem cells around, when we have the stimulus to produce, to take those stem cells into tissue, make those kind of tissues, make those blood cells, those, sorry, those blood vessels, and all that side of things. Now the thing is, is there's a lot of information recently has come out about polarised training versus your kind of tempo threshold training. If you don't know what that is, have a look into it. 
Uh, I don't really want to go over too many of the details, but the idea is really, really simple. The polarized training is where you train relatively easy, almost, almost all the time, and then occasionally you do extremely hard work at VO2 max or above to essentially, and that's why it's polarized, because you're at two ends of the spectrum. Now, we've also got the threshold model, which is basically often referred to as that kind of no man's land in the middle, that kind of tempo threshold efforts. And there's always arguments between which works better. And the problem is, is that recently there's been a big resurgence in the polarized training idea because a lot of uh, researchers such as Stephen Seeler um, have come along and shown evidence that elite athletes train almost exclusively polarized. Now, the problem is that there is a lot of issues with that research. One is that elite athletes can train in a polarized manner because they have the time. They have the time to do the long and easy stuff and then they have the time and essentially the, they're able to work in that really, really hard zone because they're often less stressed, they often don't have the work-life balance to try and, try and juggle, so they're able to put a lot of effort in when they need to, and also it's their job, so they have that motivation to try and put that top level in. So they work very well with the polarised training. Now there is some evidence that even athletes that don't have as much time could benefit from polarised training. The key issue with a lot of those studies I've never seen them really understand the relationship with age. And age is a critical thing. There's, if you've often heard that your VO2 max starts to decline towards the end of the late 20s, so around 27 tends to be the, the number thrown out. The reason for that is that at that point you're in kind of your, your stop, you stop that kind of development mode, that structural development in the, the lungs, the tissues, and then basically if you don't continue to train, VO2 max does tend to very, very slowly decline because as we get older, we lose things like our lung capacity because our tissues are there. Because there's not as many stem cells there, which are the, the essentially they're the cells that can become anything. They're the cells that regenerate, that essentially give us our ability to regenerate our tissues in those areas. Um, but also we just get worse at repairing our tissues. So therefore, we, we, every time we do damage, we start to degrade the system and we don't rebuild it quite as fast. That's why things start to degrade as we get older. And with the O2 Max, which is right at the top end, so it's right at the top end of our ability in terms of a cardiovascular system, it starts to decline, which is, would make sense. The key thing is why that declines, and that is related to that structural input. So if you're thinking about the polarised training model, the easy, long and easy stuff is really designed to try and improve that structural integrity or develop it. And the problem is that a lot of these studies on elite athletes are based on relatively young elite athletes. So some studies that I've seen based on skiers have been athletes that are around the 15 to 20 um, years of age range. And these athletes still have the potential to develop that VO2 max. So yes, they will respond to polarised training. The key thing is when you start to shift over into an athlete, and I would probably bet that the majority of the people that are listening to this podcast are over the age of 27. I'd say in terms of the demographic of the, the people that I've seen, I'm going to say at least 80% of people when they get into these sports or they've been in it for a little while and they're starting to get to this level, they are over the, at that age or over their kind of mid-20s at least. The key thing about that is that, in my mind, starts to shift the focus. We now need to think about the fact that this is an aerobic sport and we are aiming to increase the energy that we can produce with oxygen by the mitochondria. It's a relatively specific target, but that is often the limiting factor. If you cannot continue to produce good amounts of energy from oxygen, you will fatigue. And that is what causes premature fatigue. That is what causes us to slow down. Now, there are other factors in terms of relationship to the brain, the central governor, and the psychological impact of slowing us down. But at the end of the day, if we can't produce 
energy from our fuel, so from our oxygen, and from the, the fuel that we're taking in, the carbohydrates and the fats, then we will not be able to produce a performance. So, the key thing is that yes, polarised training definitely does work on those factors. Do not get me wrong, that long and easy work does contribute to that aerobic development. It, do, it is part of that, and it is a way of aerobically developing the system. However, it's not a very efficient way. If you come across the idea of sweet spot, sweet spot is a, a term that's often used in cycling and has been used in, in uh, running as well, and then a similar version um, has been developed for swimming, is that the sweet spot is the idea that you work at the best intensity that you can work at that allows you to do a good amount of aerobic work but still recover well for the next day. Now everybody's sweet spot is slightly different, it is not a predetermined intensity. You'll often see with cycling that it is 88% to 92%. That is not correct. It is roughly there for most people, and that's a good aim to go for. But in some people, it could be higher. It could be 95%. And some people that aren't well as well trained, it could be as low as 85% or even down to 80%. It is the repeatability that enables you to do. So it's the idea that you're doing the maximum amount of aerobic work that allows you to recover. It's not the maximum amount of aerobic work, because that is much higher in terms of intensity. It is the bit that allows you to recover and do it the next day. If you were to do the, follow the true sweet spot model, you would do sweet spot and this work every single day with possibly the odd rest day just for a psychological um, recovery and just allowing the legs to make sure that you're not overdoing it over a, you know, days and weeks and those kind of periods of time. So going back, we're thinking about we're developing the mitochondria. So going back to the original question, and any intensity where we're aerobically, uh, we're using the aerobic system predominantly, we need to focus on that side of things. Now, if we are a young athlete, we can polarize our training because we can continue to develop those, those capillaries, the structure and that side of things. And if we're an older athlete, I believe we should be moving towards the tempo and threshold model. Because until you hit about 15 hours plus in a single sport per week, you're probably not exhausting your ability to do that tempo and threshold. A lot of people believe and they stay away from this zone because they view it as this grey zone. Now, it got that title a long time ago and it's very, very unjust. And the reason it got that title is because it is the zone that elite athletes tend to stay away from, but it's the zone they compete at. So it was always said, well, if you want to train well, you want to see the best athletes in sport, how they train, and essentially copy them. And we know now, really, that that's not true. Not only are they very unique in the fact that they've got to that level, but also they have very different time and uh, the essentially work and life and balance commitments than, than a lot of people do. The other key thing about the tempo threshold model is it's relatively easy to accomplish in that you can do that, those kind of tempo and threshold efforts when you're mildly tired in that you don't have to be at full form, full fitness or full kind of alertness to be able to do them. I often find with the polarised model is yes the easy stuff is relatively easy. Sometimes we get drawn into going too hard which is another problem. We don't take it easy enough, but then we don't. We really struggle to put the amount of effort in in the hard stuff, and that then causes a problem because you're then bringing yourself back into that that middle zone, but actually possibly doing a little bit too much. Because if you're doing the longer, easy stuff, but it's slightly too hard, you're actually overloading the body, and then you're trying to do the really hard stuff, but you're not really getting up to the top end, and you're doing a little bit more of it, then that can cause a problem. I like people to come back into that tempo zone. The key thing about that is that is an area that is very, very potent and aerobic stimulus. That is, it is, and it's the reason it's so potent, particularly when we reach a certain age, is because it almost solely focuses on our mitochondria's ability to produce energy by the use of up 
basically make upgrading the mitochondria is the best way to think about it. There's a lot, I'm not going to go through all the mechanisms, if you're really interested in that, I can put something in the show notes that talk about the enzymes and the really kind of key you know, transport proteins and all those things that are actually what happens. But what you need to remember is that the good quality aerobic work increases the ability of the mitochondria, the energy cells, the little nuclear power stations in our cells, it, it is the, those that produce our energy and aerobic training improves those through things like the ability for them to uptake the carbohydrates or fat, the enzymes that help them burn those fat or that, sorry, that, that, that fuel for energy and all those factors. Aerobic training does the whole lot, but sweet spot and tempo works very potently there. We can get a lot out of an hour now you go out and do a very, very easy hour and you'll make almost no stimulus at all. You do an extremely hard hour and you probably won't be able to do that for another few days at least and actually that can end up in a lower training load. So what I like athletes to do is gravitate towards that and really try and stick at it for a little while as well. Often people think the problem is is that when we do short, sharp stuff, when we do VO2 max, we often say, oh, it, make, it improves me, it makes me, and it's the thing that really works for me. It's because... You can think about that as in sharpening the sword, you know, that's the end bit. That is that sharpening the knife ready right at the end. So a few weeks to go and when you're training specifically for an event, let's say five to eight minutes long at a hill climb, then doing that work helps top things off, put the cherry on top. The problem is, is it's not for our age or the older age group that sustainable and it's not really working that hard on that aerobic system or it is but in the cumulative load, it doesn't work in that we, unless you can sustain those kind of sessions a few times a week for, you know, almost indefinitely without pushing your body into kind of overtraining and tiredness, because you, you know, if you get on the bike and do that hard session, but you've had a very bad night's sleep the night before, the impact on your hormones can be quite profound. Now that might have not have an, uh, any issues for days or weeks, but months later, you might end up in, in a big hole. So that's what I want you to bear in mind. So when it comes to training intensity for anything longer than a few minutes, we need to think aerobically and then we need to think about what's the best benefit or what is the best training intensity for aerobic training and it is that tempo sweet spot. We start there and move from there. If we have more time, then you can throw in some nice and easy stuff. That's absolutely fine. It's not to say that is bad and it's not to say it doesn't work. I'm just saying that if you've got 10 hours a week to train, do the tempo threshold sweet spot model is very, very productive and is most definitely not this grey zone that's often interpreted as or said as. I've read that so many times and that is simply because of the fact that that is where the elite athletes who have more time to train will stay out of. A lot of those elite athletes, they will go out and do a lot of long easy training because they have the time. So if you have the time to go out, you might as well go out for a nice bike ride and spend your time on your bike because if you've got, you're doing that, you might not have anything else to do if you're a professional cyclist. So. That's why I'm into bone. So that's, I'm going to leave that question there. I'm going to put a few little indications in the show notes of what I mean by this. But basically, the I really kind of focus on the fact that you're trying to accumulate time, more time at that aerobic intensity. And be patient and be conservative. When you do sweet spot and threshold work, it should feel comfortably hard but not too hard. You can go harder. You can go much, much harder. For that duration, you can go significantly harder. So let's say you're doing two lots of, say, 20 minutes. You can go harder for that 20 minutes, most definitely. But if you do, you won't be able to repeat it the next day or the day after that or a few days after that. Now, is that feasible to do those sessions every day? For some people, it isn't. So sometimes when you're only able to do a session two or three times a week, 
then bumping the intensity up to the higher end, so you might go towards 95% of your kind of your power that you're able to put out. The other key thing is this is you know this is obviously bear in mind that people with power meters on bikes and that's where it's been studied considerably. But the also the same thing uh, does come across to when you're using heart rate. And please, I want people to try and think about going on feel on this. Heart rate is very misleading when it comes to this. Trying to work out your thresholds on heart rate is very, very difficult. But try and go on feel. So let's say you're doing two lots of 20 minutes. You want to go at an intensity where you, if you, at the end of the 20 minutes, you could go on for another, you could probably do the full 40 in one go, but you're having a psychological break. Have a five minute break at most. If you have 10 minutes, you'll go too hard. So often a tool I've used with people, and sometimes if you will go to keep going too hard in that second bit, they only get a minute or two break between the 20 minutes. Because theoretically, they should be able to easily do that 40 minutes without too much difficulty at all. So I want you to go and try that, try and think about training, and that's when I want to think about training as you're going into your winter break. This is how you continually long-term develop that aerobic system when you've reached a certain age. So those long, easy rides, yes, they might be social, but they're not really doing you any good at all anymore. Possibly, if you've got time limited, save those longer rides for when you're building up towards your lead races and you actually want the psychological boost that you can go out and ride for um, four or five hours, particularly on your your race bike in aero position. So I'm going to leave that question there. The second question that I just want to have a look at now is, is the idea of tapering. So when it comes to tapering, the uh, the key thing when it uh, is, is regards to tapering is, is what you've done before that, what your event obviously is, and how you feel, and how you respond. Some people find that when they reduce their train over for a few days, they start to feel really, really good. And that will start to give you an idea of how long or what you should probably do in a taper. If you're the kind of person that has a few days off and you feel very sluggish, you need to make sure that when you're tapering, you're keeping a little bit of intensity in there. But you're also trying to make sure that the, the whole body systems, hormones and everything have started to reset. You've started to give you as much uh, potential to generate all that energy that you're going to need on race day, but also psychologically. Hitting that tape point can often be a big psychological boost. Most people start it when they do their longest or their kind of hardest session almost, and then they start tapering back down again because they feel like they've really, you know, they're aiming at that session, they've achieved it, and they can then start working towards it. But this idea of doing month-long tapers for Ironman just doesn't really make any sense. Often when it comes to Ironman, and actually the athletes, the elite athletes will taper less for longer events because they, the, there's this idea that form and fitness are the two things we're looking at. When we come to shorter events, it's all about essentially how much effort you can put in. And for that, you actually, the freshness, sorry, not fitness, freshness is most important. So having a, essentially a more dramatic taper can often work better for those shorter events. Whereas longer events, the body needs to know it can, t it can continue to do what it needs to do. And actually, some people that find that they taper too early, it's almost like the body's forgotten how much it can actually achieve. And then it starts to put almost doubts into the, the person's mind. So the key thing about that is that you don't necessarily need to start your taper too far out. You need to be as intuitive as you possibly can be and use how you recover in training to work out your how you recover, how you feel. Now don't use training metrics for this. Things like training peaks and various other software do have metrics for this and they don't really apply to the individual. They are rough estimates. If you're as I say, if you're the kind of person who in you know has a day off and then feels great, or takes two or three days off it. To, to kind of get that feeling back, then that starts to show you how well you recover. I personally, if I'm thinking about going to an Ironman, I pretty much train normally 
right up to the weekend before. So I have about a week when I start to kind of deload things. And that's mostly because I don't do the huge volumes of training and the intensity. And I am confident that actually it's better to just be always on a kind of good fitness level rather than trying to peak for a particular level. Often a lot of people are trying to essentially peak for one event and they really, really build up constantly up to that event you know, without ever considering that we're trying to just generally get fitter. So they, every session leading up to that event is always better than the previous one. It's always a bit harder and a bit harder again or a bit longer. And the problem with that is that we get to a point where we don't make as big a jump or the body doesn't respond quite as well. And the issue with that is we're not intuitive. We then try and push harder the next one. So, for instance, let's say you were doing longer running and you, you went out and you decided, right, this week I'm going to do 15 miles. Next week I'm going to do 20 miles. And you went out and you did 15 miles and it didn't feel that great. Now, the week after, are you going to do 20 miles or are you going to do 15 miles again? Well, my logic would say that you would do 15 miles again, trying to basically get that 15 miles a little bit more comfortable. Then you can start to think about moving up. But a lot of people will just jump straight to the next thing and they'll always feel uncomfortable. And that really shows if you're not if you're not able to accomplish the first bit of what you want to try and do, then maybe you should try and first get comfortable at accomplishing that before you try and push things on to the next level. So often a lot of people have tried this again and again and again, gradually building up, and that's why they ended up they end up needing a long taper as a psychological thing as much as anything else. But the key thing you've got to remember what you're trying to do in a taper, you're just trying to to give your, your body's chance to restock glycogen properly. Uh, make sure all the muscles essentially are in that kind of repair mode, which is relatively quickly. That often happens in, in days, if not hours. But also, again, that psychological side of things. And also, again, hormones. The problem with hormones is that they take much longer. So really, if you're thinking about tapering for hormones' sake, you could be talking weeks to months, but then you would lose all the, the fitness gains and that side of things. So it's a, it's a fine balance. At the end of the day, with a taper, you're just trying to keep yourself nice and fresh. You try and move your limbs as much as you can without making yourself tired. Little bits of intensity can often be quite useful for this, just short bursts. But you don't need to do a lot, but you just need to do essentially enough. And going to the race being slightly well-rested is definitely a lot better than trying to almost train up to the race. That often happens. A lot of people find the taper is taken care of by, by having to travel to races. It's a great way of actually going into that taper. Um, but actually the, the travel allows you to have a few days and you just relax and you do a bit of mobilization work, try and keep, keep the body moving as much as possible. If you're traveling, you try and move around as much as you can. And that really keeps things essentially moving and supple and stops everything from locking down. Stops the brain from thinking, right, this is the position I want to be in, as opposed to, you know, that seated position on that plane is not the position you want to be in. It wants to be upright as much as possible. So if you're on a plane, take the opportunity to stand up. There's nothing wrong with standing up and walking around a little bit. Everyone else does it. You know, walk to the toilets, everything. If you're allowed to do it, then move. Move as much as you possibly can. If you're driving to an event, give a good amount of time. I've made the mistake in the past of having to almost drive continuously to an event. It was what ruined my race in Roth last year. And one of the main problems was I was driving for four, five, six hours continuously because we didn't have time to stop. And that was a, that was a really key error. And that's something I changed this year. We had lots of time to stop and we stopped every couple of hours at the very most. Even though I was still driving, it enabled me to loosen up, move around, not do anything specific. I wasn't getting out of the car and stretching or doing anything, um, any mobilisation work. I was just moving. And that's quite important. So keep moving your taper and then try and sort out all the, all the little things. You don't want to really want to make sure that everything in terms of your bike and the mechanicals and that side of things are sorted a week before. Because if you need to get them, replace parts or order anything, you need a bit of time. You don't want to be suddenly rushing at the last minute. 
but use that last week to sort a few things out that you've got ready. So you've got, you know, putting your, your elastic laces in your shoes and all that side of things. You know, leave it for that week because that's the time you're going to then have. Um, but bear in mind, again, if, if anything goes wrong, you're not going to have much time to correct it, but have some, some strategy in place just in case that happens. So that's the way that I like to think about tapering. I like to think about just, you know, in the lead up to the race, a few days before, I don't believe in this idea of, oh, two days before the race, have the day off, all this kind of side of things. Everyone's very different. Just keep moving. Just do all, th and if you can, just do all three sports every day. Just a little bit of swimming, a little bit of biking, a little bit of running. You don't need to do a lot, or and you just need to do a little bit, enough to turn over, enough to keep the brain knowing how to do those, those movements, those actions. But psychologically, that'll keep you, you know, kind of switched on, everything's ticking over nicely. And that's all I want to say about the tapering side of things. I think people overcomplicate it. They try and they try and do things like they try and do certain sessions, they try and carb load, they try and do depletion sessions. Almost always that ends in failure because they, they overthink things too much. They get panicked. Have I had enough of this? Have I done enough of this? Have I worked hard enough in this bit? Have I done high enough intensity to keep my, my cardiovascular fitness and my VO2 maximum declining? If things don't go away that quickly at all. And if they do, a couple of you know, a percentage point on your VO2 max makes almost no difference on race day. We try and often try and maximise the taper, and I think instead of that we should just try and not let the taper ruin all the good work we've done. Think of it that, that side of things. So that's all I want to say about the tapering side of things, so we've tried to cover that topic relatively quickly because I don't think it's a big topic that we need to get into. The final thing that I'm just going to talk about is a really, really close subject to my heart, and it's something I do talk to a lot of people about, and that's sitting. We've heard a lot of that stuff about sitting is the new smoking, etc., and that to my mind, is a bit ridiculous. When you when you label things in those ways, it's really, really unfair because people get panicked. It's like, I can't sit down, otherwise I'm going to die. And that's not what happens. The reason that sitting has been linked to a lot of disease is because the people that tend to sit a lot tend to be less active, tend to have other health things that they do as well. They tend to be, they tend to smoke more and those things. It's not, these studies are based on a lot of people. So it's just rough health um, trends as opposed to actual, like, if you sit, you then must smoke and all these things. So the majority, you know, the it's not even the majority, it's certain, you know, groups that then fit together, is that smokers tend to be less healthy. They tend to be the people that want to sit more because they're less healthy, because their lungs aren't working very well. They don't like standing up for very long because they get tired and all those side of things. Not to say that all smokers are unhealthy, but those are the, you know, when we're talking about the general trends in people that smoke for a long time, those are the kind of things we're starting to, to see and starting to look at. So, sorry for a little bit of pause then, uh, just had a little bit of issue with my monitor. So we're now going to work into, and we're going to think about why that's been said and what, what we can think about in terms of sitting. And the key thing I want you to think about is, in terms of the chairs we're sitting on, if you can sit in a chair as opposed to on a chair, that tends to separate it. So if your chair cradles your back, cradles into your into your lumbar spine, the lower back, allows you to sit in that almost fetus position with your knees slightly raised. So I'm thinking of an office chair here, thinking of an office chair, particularly with an ergonomic back and support, which is the worst thing you can sit in. You think it's a good doing good thing, it's lumbar support, all this stuff, it's very bad. It's like putting an orthotic in. Don't really want to get too much into the topic of orthotics, but most people know my feelings against them, the fact that they make the foot everything very weak, they they detrain us. Um, and we want to think about how much more movement we can get as opposed to trying to reduce movement. So we want to avoid anything we can sit in. So if you're at work and you're sitting in an office chair, either perch on the edge if you can, or change to something like a stool, something you have to perch on, something you have to then move, because 
the key thing, the other key thing is a lot of people, particularly people that are on moni multiple monitors or systems where they have to swivel, they use their chair to swivel, so they lose a lot of their rotation. So every time you um, you turn, you should be using that rotation around your spine. And if you're not, you start to lose it. So what I want people to think of is, is sit on a chair where you have to physically move around in order to get around your station. And that will put you in a much better situation. So perch, move, fidget. If you can sit down into a chair for hours on end because it's so comfortable, it's probably doing you a lot of harm. The same goes for things like car seats. You don't have to slouch into a car seat all the time. Any journey that you're doing, you can move between slouching into that car seat and sitting up a little bit and activating the back. So that's what I want you to really think about. The other thing is think about sofas. So the problem is I see a lot of people that sit in their cradled in their chair all day. They come home and they lie into their sofa because they want to, because they're comfortable, because actually they're not very comfortable sat up properly and they're not comfortable standing because they've been cradled in that position. So the brain said, it's gone into a bit of panic mode. When you're upright, it says, this isn't right. This isn't good for us. We're, we're used to being in that cradled position. So it tells you to sit down on the sofa, which is really comfortable. And the problem is, is that a lot of people that sit in their daily life then sit more when they get home. If you can't avoid sitting in your day, then you've got to avoid it when you can. You've got to avoid it when you're when you're at home on the sofa, you try and, you know, I sit on the floor, I move around, I try and do things, I don't even anything, do anything specific, I just make sure I'm sitting in a way that is, um, that is, as, as essentially creates a lot of fidgeting, a lot of movement, and I just stand up all the time, I probably spend no more than a minute or two in any one position, at the very most, even when I'm, I'm reading, even when I'm writing, even when I'm recording this now, I'm actually recording this now, sitting essentially on my knees, like kneeling, with a uh, foam roller sat behind my, uh, sitting on my ankles. So I'm kind of sitting back onto that foam roller. And that puts me in a very open position. It puts me in an open hip position. It puts me in a very activated position. I can feel my back doing the work. And that's what I want you to bear in mind. Thinking about moving to things like stools or possibly a saddle chair, which is like a, a horse's saddle, which also, again, puts you in an activated position, is a much better way of thinking about it than saying suddenly, right, oh, I have to stand all the time. Or have to, you know, because standing and moving a lot during work particularly means we don't become particularly productive. We tend to break up things too much. And if we end up doing that a lot, we don't really get our work done. We extend everything a bit longer than we should. And we end up not really, you know, we get frustrated ourselves not being able to do the things outside of work. So with that in mind, um, I want you to really, really kind of think about your work environment, your home environment, and how you can reduce the amount of sitting in chairs, the amount of cradle and supportive sitting you can get. And don't worry too much about the kind of less supportive perch type sitting that is actually not too bad at all. So I'll leave that topic there. Have an experiment, see how you get on. And if anyone has any questions they want to feedback from that, uh, please do. If you have any questions about regarding the training intensities, that's a very big and very hard topic to get your head around because there's a lot to it. And that's why I want to try and keep it relatively brief and I hope I haven't gone over that too much. I hope, I haven't, I hope I've explained things well enough. The idea being that things change when you get older. If you are in that older category, then moving towards the accumulation of that aerobic training load, i.e. tempo and threshold. And the only thing that changes is running. I don't really want to discuss this too much now. But I discussed in the podcast and things before that I'm not really a fan of tempo running. I think it's a middle ground that you don't really get the benefits out of if you're doing tempo work on the bike. That's the key thing is that that middle kind of threshold intensity works very well for the bike, but I don't think it works well for the run. I think when we go for running, we should polarise our training a little more. Again, working back into that polarised model of doing nice, long, easy stuff or easy work as opposed to necessarily need to be that long. 
and then doing short, sharp things like neuromuscular work. So not really VO2 max. I also don't do the VO2 max level when I run. I do short, sharp repetitions to keep my neuromuscular, which is the brain's ability to control the mu muscles and movement, keep that in check, and then stay away from that middle tempo grind that I, I accomplish or I get the benefits from by doing that work on the bike. So I'm gonna leave that there. Thank you very much for listening again on this training episode. The next episode again is going to be going back to the nutrition side. So I've still got tons of nutrition questions to get through. I hope you find some of this, uh, this useful and I'll uh, speak to you soon. Goodbye.